Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Okay, so thank you for having me for the lovely introduction. Um, as uh, Rabbi Yanklowitz, <laughs> we practiced my name, we didn't practice yours. Um, as he said, I'm visiting you from Meadville, Pennsylvania, um, which is about an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh. And I serve as Director of Jewish Life at Allegheny in addition to being Assistant Professor of Religious Studies. So as I was traveling here and preparing for this lecture, my students um, have been sending me a flurry of emails and texts and group me messages. They're planning a campus-wide vigil that we're gonna hold on Wednesday night when I get back. And a few of them are actually from Squirrel Hill. So this, this hit our community pretty hard. Um, it's been a tough couple days and I don't have answers, but I hope I can offer with this talk a window into a world of Jewish vision and hope. And the farm I'm going to focus on today is one that was founded in the late 19th century as a place for Jewish refugees fleeing violence in Eastern Europe. Today, a revitalized version of that farm is taking on climate change and offering a place of refuge and healing for Jewish urban dwellers. It's a place where Jewish history is celebrated and Jewish futures can be secured. I hope that spending some time in that place with me today will offer you a bit of refuge as well. Yes. So on a hot day in August of this year, I attended the Alliance Colony Reunion in um, Elmer, New Jersey, which is near the bigger city of Vineland, and it was quite a sight to see. The festivities took place in this tree-lined field in front of Alliance Cemetery. You can see the cemetery in the backdrop there. Um, next to the Alliance Colony Museum and across the street from the historic Tefereth Israel Synagogue. It's a place filled with history and memories of a time when Jewish families arrived from the Pale of Settlement with the clothes on their backs and set up an agricultural community. The hundreds of people that sat at picnic tables and enjoyed grilled chicken, corn, watermelon, and Rita's Italian ices are the descendants of the original Alliance colonists. The atmosphere was buzzing with excitement. People proudly displayed the names of the colonists they're related to on their name tags and many of them wandered through the cemetery at some point during the afternoon to visit the headstones of their ancestors. People connected with friends and distant relatives they hadn't seen in years. Everywhere I went, it seemed that someone was explaining that they were the small child who always used to wear that blue hat with the green shoes so that friends from summers spent by the river would remember them. For the youngest descendants, there was face painting in a bouncy house. And for the adults, there were tours of the nearby synagogue and museum. Stockton University set up a tent and sent their librarians out to digitize photos and documents that people had brought with them so they can house the memories of this community in their archives. 
a documentary that was made about the colony, including footage from the 100-year anniversary that was held back in 1982, was screening on a loop in a tent, while another film crew comprised of cousins who are descendants, who are also descendants, wound through the picnic tables gathering footage for their documentary. The event was sponsored by the Alliance Colony Foundation and the local Jewish Federation, and representatives of both bodies offered speeches to mark the occasion, between rousing tunes from the band that was set up outside. A dance group performed and encouraged others to join, and the rabbi of a local synagogue blew a shofar to, marsh, to mark Rosh Chodesh. A Jewish genealogist set up a Facebook group for Alliance descendants and wandered through the crowds helping people use their phones, log onto Facebook, and find the group. And many of the speakers thanked William and Malia Levin for carrying on the legacy of Alliance, and it's their story that I'm sharing today. But their story begins long before their project did, so we'll start with some history. Howard Jaffe, who you can see there in the green hat, is one of the rare Alliance descendants who still works as a farmer. He loves Alliance and its history, and he serves as caretaker for the Tefereth Israel Synagogue. I've been on two different tours of the synagogue with him in the summers of 2017 and 2018, each time with three of my summer research students from Allegheny College in tow. Both times, it was so hot in the synagogue that we were all visibly sweating through our clothes. Both times, Howard talked for about an hour about the synagogue's history, the people who built it, and those who kept it running through the years. He talked about how farming has changed and how hard it was for him to see the transition to corn and soybeans within his lifetime. And both times, two different sets of sweaty students listened absolutely enthralled and asked Howard incessant questions to mine his knowledge of the community, the local farming scene, and the synagogue. The first synagogue of the Alliance Colony was Eben HaEzer, Rock of Salvation, and it was dedicated in July 1888. Tefereth Israel, the one shown here, um, Splendor of Israel, was founded two years later in 1890. Only Tefereth Israel remains a synagogue today. It's home to a small community, and Howard makes sure that the building is kept up and that they have enough people for a minion for monthly Shabbat services and for the high holidays. He also keeps himself busy with research. He's constantly reading about the community and finding out more about the past residents of the area and the lives that they live. He sends me emails when he finds new articles or books he thinks I may not have seen. And he's interested in the agricultural aspects of the community, which are less accessible in the archive. He wants to know what the colonists were growing and how they did it, in addition to understanding the houses they lived in, the schools they attended, and how they celebrated Shabbat. When Howard heard that a young couple was hoping to start a Jewish community farm right there in Elmer, he immediately became one of their first partners in their mission to revitalize Jewish farming in one of the few places in the U.S. with a history of Jewish agriculture. During my visits at Alliance, he's a constant presence. He often shows up with fresh produce from his farm and a new story that he learned about the history of this community that he loves. In the late 19th century, Waves of Jewish immigrants flooded American shores. In Imperial Russia, Jews comprised about 4% of the population, and 95% of those Jews lived in the Pale of Settlement, an area that includes present-day Belarus, Lithuania, Moldova, and sections of Ukraine, Latvia, and Western Russia. Jews were permitted to live in the Pale and not in the other areas of Imperial Russia as permanent residents from 1791 to 1917. 
There, they functioned as a minority, non-agricultural class of middlemen in an agricultural society in the midst of a fraught transition towards industrialization. This was mainly out of necessity, as Jews had been historically denied the right to engage in agriculture and didn't know how. In 1802, Tsar Paul tried a new program and encouraged Jews to take up agriculture, hoping that this work would integrate them into Russian society. The program was not particularly successful, but it did introduce a fair number of Jewish people to agricultural work. Russia was unstable, and policies changed as rulers did. By the 1880s, Jews in Russia worked mainly as small-scale artisans, traders, and merchants. When a wave of pogroms spread through Russia in 1881, followed by the May Laws of 1882, which restricted Jewish access to schools and government positions, Jews started emigrating en masse out of Russia. As Jewish immigrants fled persecution and violence in the Pale, a number of organizations formed quickly in Europe and the United States to assist them. In 1881, the Hebrew Emigrant Aid Society, or HEAS, was formed to help Jews fleeing oppression settle in the United States. This is the organization that is now known as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, or HIAS, highest. And they are in the news because 137 years later, they continue to settle refugees in the United States and have expanded their mission to include non-Jewish refugees as well. In the 19th century, we'll call it, instead of highest, we'll call it HIAS. <laughs> HIAS focused their assistance on agriculture. They noted that agriculture was the most important industry in the United States at the time, and they felt that farming would afford opportunities in which the highest capacities of mind and heart will be more rapidly developed than our present life admits. While many immigrants were settled in cities, agencies like HIAS felt that establishing Jewish agricultural settlements were both a keen opportunity for able-bodied poor Jews and a helpful alternative to settling Jews in overcrowded sections of large cities. In his book, Jewish Agricultural Utopias in America, Uri Hersher suggests that this appealed to a small number of immigrants who were drawn to this chance, as he says, to make a life for themselves in one or another wilderness. He argues that they were touched by a revolutionary passion and a special dream of utopia, with an eye on reinvigorating Jewish life through productive labor. This dream of utopia came to fruition through the Am Olam movement, founded in Odessa in 1881. Am Olam, which translates to eternal people, was a movement dedicated to creating socialist agricultural communities in the United States in an effort to prove that Jews could be self-sufficient. One member of Am Olam wrote, quote, Our motto is labor in the fields, and our goal is the physical and spiritual rejuvenation of our people. End quote. There was a sense that the United States offered a unique opportunity for this group. That Am Olam member continued, in free America, we Jews shall find a corner in which to rest our heads. We shall prove to the world that we are qualified for physical labor. While many Eastern European Jewish immigrants were unable to imagine themselves as farmers, the members of Am Olam saw potential in farm labor to prove to the world that Jews were willing and able to do more than the commercial activities that they had been confined to in Europe. The agricultural communities established in the United States were diverse. Early colonies were based on communist models of hard and shared labor and simple lives. Later communities permitted individual land ownership and bound colonists together with a shared set of beliefs. 
Colonies were established in the Dakotas, Oregon, Louisiana, Michigan, Utah, Colorado, and New Jersey. The colonies all failed, except one. The Alliance Colony near Vineland, New Jersey, outlasted all the others as the first generation maintained their dedication to the agricultural mission of the colony. Though the colony changed shape as children were raised in southern New Jersey and then sought opportunities elsewhere, families of Alliance kept houses there and maintained a presence in the community long term. Alliance even had a second agricultural life in the 1930s when the Jewish Agricultural Society placed German and Austrian refugees there and helped establish them as poultry farmers. After the Holocaust, a number of survivors were similarly placed in and around Vineland. One survivor, Tina Benson, recalled, quote, we needed rest in our lives. We became farmers not because of any idealism, but for psychological reasons. The work and the life were good spiritually, end quote. Echoing the ideals of the Amolam settlers who preceded her, Benson touched on the impetus of all the projects that have sought to establish a Jewish agricultural community in southern New Jersey, a desire to connect to the land and to find healing in that work, and that work continues today. This is Jay Greenblatt. He's another keeper of Alliance's history, and he's head of the Alliance Colony Foundation. He's also a good sport about giving tours and sharing history when groups like my students and I visit the area. He maintains the Alliance Colony Museum, which is where he's standing, um, which houses materials from the Brotmanville Synagogue and materials gathered from previous Alliance Colony reunions. The room is filled with photos, newspaper clippings, images of letters and legal documents, historic farm equipment, and the ark and memorial plates from the Brotmanville Synagogue. When Jay gives a history of the colony, he starts with its founding in 1882 by 43 families and ends with today. He knows this history backwards and forwards and peppers in connections to anyone who happens to be in the room as he goes. I won't share that whole history with you today, but I encourage you to reach out to Jay if you're ever traveling through southern New Jersey with some time to spare. One part of the story that Jay emphasizes especially today, is the story of Moses Bayek, one of the original colonists. Um, still standing, but not a place you want to go into. Um, Jay told us that Moses Bayek was a Talmudic scholar who wrote five books. He was appointed justice of the peace in the area and maintained his position for 40 years. Jay also tells a story about Moses Bayek's sons, Max, Sam, and Mayer. He thinks there might be other children, but he doesn't know their names. Legend has it that these three sons walked to Philadelphia, which is about 40 miles from Vineland, and got jobs in a cigar factory. Long story short, they end up owning the factory and grew it into the biggest cigar company in America at the time. Jay recalls that those cigars, Philly's cigars, were the number one cigar in the country when he was a kid. This is the story of the second generation of the Alliance Colony. They grew up on the farms and then moved to the cities their parents had tried to avoid. For Jay, this is actually a marker of the success of the colonists. They toiled on the land so their children could find success elsewhere. But even after they moved, many of them held on to land and used it for summers or rented it out to local farmers. Recently, a significant portion of Moses Bayek's land has come under the ownership of William and Malia Levin, William is Mosaic Bayek's great-great-grandson, and he's carrying on his great-great-grandfather's legacy. 
before we get there, we have a little bit more to cover about what happened when these colonists arrived in Vineland. These early colonists were brave souls. They spent the first six months in tents, with wages, provisions, and some training from a farm instructor provided by Hias. They set out to work soon after their arrival, clearing the land, which was covered in a thick forest of oak and pine trees. They started their farm with a collective 30 acres of corn. After their time in the tents, they moved into a large building known as Castle Garden, which they named for the crowded immigrant station near New York Harbor that they had passed through on their arrival to the United States. The large building was divided into 12 by 14 foot barracks, one for each family. They worked and dined communally and their schedule was strict. They woke up in the mornings at 4 a.m. and worked in the fields until breakfast at 6 a.m. Then they would work until 9 a.m., rest until 2 p.m., and work until 7 p.m. Despite these early hardships, the colony found success. By 1908, Alliance had expanded to include the nearby communities of Norma and Brotmanville and grew from 43 families to 187 for a total of about 1,000 people. There were periods of hardship and debt but the community pulled through with the help of organizations like HIAS, the Jewish Agricultural Society, and the Baron de Hirsch Fund. Uri Hirscher offers a few explanations for the survival of Alliance when so many Jewish agricultural communities failed. He notes the proximity of the colony to both New York City and Philadelphia, which ensured access to a variety of markets and aid societies. He also pointed out that there were inter industrial enterprises, like a factory, established an alliance to employ farmers in the winter that helped them get through the off-season and also hard seasons. The alliance colony succeeded where other Jewish agricultural colonies in more far-fung places like North Dakota failed. They helped to establish Jewish immigrants in the United States and enabled the generations that followed to find success outside of southern New Jersey. In her introduction to the book Jewish Agricultural Colonies in New Jersey, Ellen Eisenberg described the state of the land where Alliance once stood when she visited in 1995. She wrote, the colonies are quiet now. Farms once owned and worked by the Jewish colonists have passed into different hands. Those few still held by colony descendants are leased to others to farm. Where factories once employed Jewish workers, there are only open fields. Most of the synagogues are gone, one has been converted into a Baptist church. Most passers-by probably never realized that the southern, Jewish, the southern New Jersey communities of Alliance, Brotmanville, Norma, Carmel, and Rosenhain were once active Jewish colonies, the longest-lasting and largest of the settlement experiments undertaken by Russian Jewish immigrants in America. So that's the end of her observations. And passerbys in 2018 might still be unaware of this history, but there's a project in place that is hoping to change that. So this is William and Malia Levin, who I've mentioned a couple times. And as I mentioned, William Levin is a descendant of one of the founders and leaders of the Alliance Colony, Moses Bayek. William explained to me that the farmland had passed down since 1882 from generation to generation in his family. When the land came to William, he initially planned to sell it to developers, but he and his wife Malia changed their minds. He explained, Malia and I had recently discovered the evolving modern Jewish farming movement, became enamored with it, realized we could be part of it, and that we were halfway there. 
The Jewish Community Farming Movement is a movement that began in 2004 with the founding of Adama Farm at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center in Falls Village, Connecticut. There are now about 20 Jewish farming organizations that comprise the movement. The leaders of this movement gather annually to collaborate and strategize together. And these organizations look very different because they were each shaped by a location and the needs of their own communities. But they share a common goal of connecting Jewish people to the land and to food and to environmental justice work. William and Malia are the only members of this movement with a direct connection to a historic Jewish agricultural community. And that connection is actually the center of their work at Alliance. William and Malia actually talked about his family's history in Alliance on their first date. William was trying to impress Malia, and a marriage and two children later, it seems his efforts were successful. She recalled that she was fascinated by his family's history. She explained that she had gone to Jewish schools her whole life and learned only the immigration story of Jews who came through Ellis Island and ended up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Malia credited William as the first person who introduced her to the, to the idea that there had ever been Jewish farming communities. Now they are working together to create their own. William and Malia bought out the rest of his family's land over a number of years and combined it with William's own inherited land. He said their plan was to reboot what was once a thriving Jewish farming community. William set to work and began the Alliance Community Reboot Project. Malia, who's a lawyer, serves as legal counsel for their newly founded nonprofit organization. And she explains that the name of their organization is a tribute to the original Alliance colony. She let me know that the word reboot isn't meant to just signify restarting. She let me know that it's like rebooting a computer. They're not just restarting the Alliance colony, they're updating it and adding a modern twist. They also shortened the full name of the organization, Alliance Community Reboot, to the acronym ACRE, which is appropriate given their agricultural focus. The organization is headquartered in a farmhouse that was built by William's grandparents in 1962. It sits adjacent to the farmland they now own and 50 feet from the deteriorated house of Mosaic Bayek that was on that earlier slide. The historic Tefereth Israel Synagogue, where Howard gives his tours, is across the street, and the Alliance Cemetery and Museum, where Jay teaches history, are just down the road. The mission of the Alliance Community Reboot is to rebuild Jewish farm-based community in southern New Jersey, on the site of the Alliance Colony, the first Jewish agricultural society in North America. Their vision is to build what they call an active farm with a strong Jewish and agricultural educational component, rooted in the values of sustainability, food justice, and Jewish education. William reflected on what he's heard about the community from family and friends in the area and explained that people didn't really focus on the agriculture when they talked about it. He, they would just say they farmed to make a living. But he found in his research that people did incorporate Jewish values and traditions into their agriculture work, and that has informed the work he's doing now. He explained that their vision is to revisit the Jewish values and traditions that have been forgotten throughout the years. He pointed out that it's become more important than ever to have community sustainable agriculture. Malia confirmed this, noting, the idea of food justice and helping to reconstruct food systems, knowing where your food comes from, is really gaining popularity in the broader culture. She continued to say, something that a lot of young Jews know about 
this food justice work, but it may not, they may not realize how deeply tied in it is with their Jewish roots. William and Malia's vision is community-focused. They explain that their idea of a reboot would have a broad and inclusive community as its hub, with the hopes that this would attract communities from outside to come and visit. They clarify that this doesn't just mean the Jewish community. William remarked that this is part of Jewish tradition. He recalled walking in the Alliance Cemetery and noticing that some of the tombstones said, love thy neighbor as thyself, and that Malia's father, Arthur Kurzweil, had recently talked about this as well. William explained that they plan to include this philosophy in their community building work. For example, there's an elementary school down the road, and they've been talking to the superintendent of that school district about the possibility of having some of the students study sustainable agriculture in their fields. William and Malia decided early in their planning that they were best suited for doing the organizing, the finances, and the business end of the project, so they set out to find a farmer to do the farming. I know I'm in Arizona, so it seems a little bit silly to say that it's really hot every time I visit this place. But it's really hot every time I visit this place. And I've somehow managed to visit only on days when temperatures creep into the 90s with full humidity. And working outside without shade seems like a very questionable plan. And then I bring students along and make them do the same, um, as all good professors do. So Nate Kleiman is now the farmer in charge at Alliance. He cares for the fields there in between his activist work and his recent primary run for Congress. Nate loves historic farm equipment, rare seeds, and sorghum. He has a tractor, but this summer my students and I helped him plant and we were given this hand plow, um, a hand seeder that is not in the images and our actual hands. Um, so those are my students farming the Nate Kleiman way, which is just getting in the dirt and getting it done. Um, when we took breaks to drink water and spend a minute in the shade from his pickup truck, Nate kept plowing and planting and offering tips and tricks to the four of us, plus his brother, who had come to New Jersey to help his brother run for Congress and ended up pushing a plow. <laughs> Nate recently posted on social media about this year's sorghum harvest, and it sounds like it was a success, so I guess our work paid off. Nate refers to sorghum as an awesome plant. He explained that it's a grain, but it's gluten-free. It pops like popcorn, boils like rice, and makes delicious flour. Some varieties, including the ones he's growing, have sweet, juicy stalks that can be pressed. And Nate says if you squeeze a little bit of lime into the juice, it tastes like lemonade. If you boil it down, it makes molasses. That day, we planted about 10 rows of sorghum, and according to his social media posts, he recently spent about four days harvesting it with a cadre of friends and family members who were given sorghum juice in exchange for their labor. Malia reflected that they initially thought that they would like their acre farmer to be Jewish, but they also wanted to make sure that the person shared their values and that they wanted to base their work around. Inclusivity, focusing on the broader community, and doing something sustainable and interesting with the land. They attended the Jewish Community Farming Network convening in January 2017, and there they met Nati Passau, who runs the Jewish Farm School in Philadelphia. He connected them with Nate and Dusty Hins, um, who co-founded the Experimental Farm Network. Together, the Experimental Farm Network facilitates collaborative plant breeding and sustainable agriculture research in order to fight global climate change 
preserve the natural environment, and ensure food security for humanity into the distant future. When I sat down with Nate, he clarified that their aim is basically to develop crops and growing systems that will sustain us as the climate changes. This includes developing plants that will sequester carbon in the ground and take excess carbon out of the atmosphere. They also plant rare seeds that they get from places like government seed banks. Nate explained that these seeds are a more diverse population than the commercially available seeds. And what he does is he plants them and then breeds them for traits like drought and heart, like drought hardiness. Um, so he told me that if he loses 90% of a crop in a drought, he doesn't, once we plant things, he doesn't really water them. He's trying to grow these plants for resistance. So if he loses 90% of the crop, he, he keeps the 10% that survived and then moves forward from there because that's going to be a more drought-resistant crop. And that will be useful as the climate changes and um, there are places that will end up dealing more with drought. Nate acknowledged that this is a long-term slow project without much potential for financial gain, which is why they set up their, their network as a nonprofit collaboration. Nate summed up their work simply by saying, we're farming for a better future. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Nate and Dusty started their work in Pittsgrove Township, New Jersey, which is not far from Elmer, about four years before Malia and William reached out. They had been living in Philadelphia collecting seeds, and they had about 90 flats worth of rare seed, seedlings that they needed to get into the ground. Nate posted something on Facebook, connected with someone who had land in Pittsgrove, and they began their experimental farming project soon after. As it turns out, the owners of that farm in Pittsgrove thought that it used to be a Jewish farm because they had found Jewish things in the attic when they moved in. Nate confirms that they were right. It had been a Jewish chicken farm in the mid-20th century. William and Malia were excited to meet Nate and Dusty and to bring their dilemma to experienced farmers. William's family had been leasing out their land for 30 years to a local farmer, and that farmer had been practicing monocropping, alternating between corn and soybeans and using pesticides on the fields. They were unsure about how to process, how to begin the process of rehabilitating the soil, giving it time to rid itself of the pesticides and transition for use in organic agriculture. William, Malia, Nate, and Dusty entered into an agreement whereby Nate and Dusty would use the smallest of William and Malia's fields, a two-acre field, in 2017 to begin their experiments. That agreement is memorialized here in this photo that one of my students snapped that day. Um, so Nate and Dusty started in Pittsgrove, but Dusty now lives in um, Michigan and Minnesota, back close to family. So I think Minnesota. And so Nate is, has really been the lead on this project in New Jersey. And so Nate calls that two-acre field the little field. Um, he planted sorghum and cowpeas, which did pretty well, and some other seeds, which did not do very well. He explained that the soil at Acre is not ideal. It's drier, sandier, and more depleted than what they're used to. But he has high hopes that the soil is regenerating, and he plans to be a responsible steward for the land after what he described as many years of abusive chemicals and intensive rotations. 
In 2018, Nate expanded his experiments onto the larger field next to the farmhouse, which is where my students were working, and is the field here. So this is a bit larger than the, the little field. For the time being, William and Malia live in Brooklyn and visit the farm some weekends and for Jewish agricultural festivals like Sukkot. This year, they partnered with two other Jewish community farming organizations, the Jewish Farm School out of Philadelphia and Eden Village Camp, which the camp's in upstate New York, to host their Sukkot festival. In addition to formal partnerships with Nate and these other farming organizations, they have assembled a crew of enthusiastic informal supporters, including many of those I've already mentioned. William and Malia were as excited to meet Howard as he was excited to meet them, especially because they think of Howard as a real Jewish farmer. The first time I visited Acre, Aaron Muller, who was in one of the earlier images, a friend of William and Malia's, um, who's a Jewish farmer, gardener, artist, and musician, spent the week there taking photos and posting them to his social media pages to get the word out about Acre. The second time I visited Yadija Greenberg, an aspiring chicken farmer, was living in the farmhouse contemplating a future collaboration involving heritage chickens. William and Malia also see the Jewish community farming movement as their extended family, and they explain that their circles now intersect everywhere all the time. They are part of the Jewish Farm Network on Facebook, where people share ideas about halakha and Jewish agriculture, and this helps them stay connected to the work day-to-day, -day, even in Brooklyn. They've reconnected with local Jewish agriculture enthusiasts and are part of a community tied together by history and familial bonds. They have so much of what those early colonists were missing. What William and Malia share with their predecessors is a desire to be connected to land and to build community, and they are well on their way. I started by connecting the story to the Pittsburgh shooting, um, and so I'll end with the part of the story that gives, us, gives me the most hope. The Alliance Colony reunion that I spoke about earlier took place this year on August 12, 2018. It was the one-year anniversary of the day when white supremacists marched through Charlottesville. Jay Greenblatt, who spoke as head of the Alliance Colony Foundation, reminded the crowd of this fact. He said, As we are here now, and I am speaking, neo-Nazis and white supremacists are gathering in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the anniversary of Charlottesville. He asked the crowd to remember what brought their ancestors to New Jersey 136 years ago. He urged them not to stand idly by and do nothing. Jay's concerns are merited, of course, but the descendants of Alliance are not sitting idly by and doing nothing. They were there, hundreds of them. They were spending the afternoon about learning about their history and taking pride in their heritage and their Jewishness. It was a joyful day filled with laughter, eating, music, and dancing. It was a celebration of the ancestors who came to the United States as refugees, worked hard, and made a life in southern New Jersey. It was a reminder of the power of Jewish community and our uncanny ability to survive and thrive. I hope that we are all able to find places like Alliance to do the same. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we have plenty of time for questions. <laughs> you had mentioned that in the Pale of Settlement, most Jews were merchant shopkeepers, etc. And yet we have this exception when some Jews come mm -hmm. to America. And as I recall, the early Zionists were enamored with the kibbutz, mm -hmm. yeah. which was, again, an agricultural commune. Yeah. Uh, so how did that happen? Uh, 
strategies to how do you have how do you have a group of merchants and shopkeepers move to other countries and all at once become you know farmers? Yeah, so it was um, it was all part of the same project. So Amolam and this colony was actually named after Alliance Israeli Universal out of France. Um, and the projects of those organizations were to settle Jews and make them self-sufficient. So they were teaching people how to farm and grow their own food so that they would have the resources they needed no matter what. Okay. And so it was, it was the project of these resettlement organizations to say, you're going to a new place, you're going to grow food there, you're going to be your own insular community that can do everything you need. And was that due to the trauma mm -hmm. they'd experienced in, in Russia? Yeah. Yeah, that plus their reliance in place in Russia, um, but also in other places throughout history, where they, because they didn't have land of their own, relied on others for food, and so other people were in charge of whether they were going to be able to eat or not, and so a huge part of this like self sufficiency project was always we need to make sure we have everything we need, and food is a big part of that. And so, and part of what Uri Hersher writes about in his book is why the communities in the United States, which were founded at the same time as the ones being founded in what was then British Mandate Palestine, mm -hmm. succeeded. And in the United States, they just failed, right? And some of it's distance to, to larger communities, some of it's the land they were given, some of it's um, having other options where, you know, if you're out on a kibbutz, that's your option. Where in the United States, you can always move back to the Lower East Side. I just wanted to do a PS because I know a teacher kind of teaches that it was choice to go either to a shtetl or, a, mm -hmm. and, and, and actually they were forced into the pale. And actually, and because they wanted people to work the land, they weren't allowed to own the land. Mm -hmm. They actually wanted them to learn to work the land, and they weren't really allowed to be educated. Or, mm -hmm. Or um, in the pale, you mean? Right. Yeah. And Gentiles weren't allowed to do business with them. They were mm -hmm. only allowed to do business with them themselves. So it was kind of like that's where it grew out when they went to Israel and in the kibbutz. They had that interest in farming. It, it actually mm -hmm. came from the original being in the pale. But in the pale, they couldn't own the land. No, but, they couldn't own the land. No, but no, no. yeah, but there were some, some of. <laughs> Today, those Russian oligarchs yeah. mm -hmm. were wealthy and purposely bought up the land. They weren't allowed to own yeah. land. They were forced to be mm -hmm. in their own uh, area. And, and, and there had been some of these projects to teach them. Some of, some of the Tsars, I talked about Tsar Paul, who said, maybe if we teach them to farm, they'll, they'll fit into society better. So there were some of these projects along the way where, um, and there was a, I, I can't remember the name of it, off the top of my head, but there was a Jewish farming or community set up in Russia as an experiment to say maybe if we let them do this, they'll stop being a menace to society or whatever the you know the yeah, Russians imagined <laughs> the ways that they imagined and Jews. It was mm -hmm. Very poor, uh, you know, existence. And yeah. Some some did better than others, but for the most part, it was a very meager mm -hmm. living that they could each have. Yeah. And what helped is a lot of them were in, so they were merchants and they were artisans, but a lot of them were in agricultural trade. So they weren't doing the farming, but maybe they were, what they were selling was seeds or what they were selling was equipment. And so some of them knew a lot about agriculture, even if they weren't the ones doing agriculture. 
And so that helped. And, and you see a higher percentage of Jews that end up choosing when they move to the U.S. or to then Palestine, right, to farm, you get a higher percentage of those Jews who are already engaged somewhat in this agricultural world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's some, um, mostly what happens is training partnerships back and forth. So people will go to Israel and um, go through training programs at Arava, at, uh, which is at Kibbutz Katora and other places that are doing drought-resistant farming, um, and then come back to the U.S. and work on some of these farms. But they, they have really different character. <laughs> Um, so in, in Israel, they have this long legacy that, that stretches back without interruption to this um, to kibbutzim that were founded in the 1880s. In, in the U.S., most of these projects don't have that historical connection. And so they're more focused on kind of contemporary food justice and environmental justice issues. So they'll go and they'll learn some skills and come back and implement it with different goals here. We were very lucky to get this etro, you know, that they used for our little sukkah ceremony, uh-huh. and um, we found seeds in it, and we're trying to sprout them. It's quite a project. You have to peel the husk yes. and let them grow, and so Beth is having success with her 59. <laughs> and I think it's because I gave a little vitamin B, like root starter, uh-huh. and that can also burn, I think, them, and so should I take them out and wash them off and start again, or? You know, I'm not an experienced etrog farmer. Um, <laughs> but there is one in the Phoenix area. <laughs> My understanding is that, so etrogs were, um, were kind of a predecessor of a lot of our citrus crops in the U.S. So I know, I know history, but not how to necessarily grow things. Okay, um, so... Part of why lemons and oranges and things are easier to grow is because they were, they bred them that way. So etrogs kind of remain this kind of finicky like crop, right? Yeah. Thank you all. I'm I'm learning about your farming. This is great. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.